to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resilience, business continuity, COVID, emergency management, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick there, so I'm really easy to find. Just send me a note and I do respond to everything I get. One quick announcement. I will be speaking at the Continuity Insights Conference, April 25th to 27th in Louisville, Kentucky. And fingers crossed that it'll be an in-person event. We'll see, but I hope it's in person and I hope to see everybody there and uh, meet a lot of you and maybe get some of you to come on the show. Longtime listeners and uh, viewers on YouTube will know that I was speaking at the BCI World Virtual Conference 2021 in November, and my hope was that I would be able to get some of those speakers and presenters and people from the conference to come on the show and talk about their topics or any other topic that's relatable, of course. But today is one of those lucky days where I do have one of the presenters joining us, speaking on the topic of a rethink of organizational risk from lessons learned throughout 2020. I'd like to welcome Andrew Witz. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, I I know I've got your bio and I know who you are, but uh, just in case somebody out there doesn't know who you are, can you take a minute or two, tell us where um, who you are, what you do, and how you got into this crazy risk industry? <laughs> uh, be my pleasure. Thank you. Um, so I, I've been in the industry for of, uh, risk and business continuity for about 16 years. Um, as you can probably tell from the accent, I'm uh, from K originally. I live in the US and I ended up working for a company called Stroll Systems, uh, which um, had a product that was uh, predominantly um, built around business continuity planning. Um, I sort of have been on the customer side of things and I've uh, I've run programs and I've uh, been a product manager. Um, so I've worked on the software side and the vendor side. And I've worked on the running a program side. Um, so I've been in the year for about 16 years and I've actually fallen into um, the company that I work for now is Infinite Blue and I'm the senior director for alliances uh, at this time. So I work with a lot of partners and um, <clears throat> external companies that we work with uh, as we expect. Well, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. This will this will be a good one for, uh, you know, uh, lessons learned in uh, 2020. It uh, was uh, one of those interesting years, that's for sure. Certainly <laughs> <It> was. <laughs> so let's start off with the first thing I want to ask you. Then, why do we need to rethink the way we do business continuity? So thank you, and great question. Um, I think a lot of the building blocks that we do in business continuity are fairly sound, but one of the things that we found throughout 2020, and obviously we 
dealt with a lot of unprecedented events and unprecedented times. Not just the dealing with the pandemic, but the duration of the event and the fact that it was very, very global. This forced a number of gaps to be noticed, the way that done planning and the way that we had done preparedness. There was a lot of lessons learned where if you were to ask a lot of contingency planners, what would you do differently next time? There are some things that they would change and how do we get to that point and what were the lessons learned and you know, what did you find out that would have traditionally worked that didn't work? Mm-hmm. Can you give a hint or two at what maybe some of those might be? You know? Yeah, certainly. Um, some of the things that we noticed, I mean, for example, um, when you're t- doing traditional business continuity planning, um, you know, we're taking a look internally at our organization and we take a look at what our critical processes are. We do analysis to figure out what are our highest impacts and we sort of based on that, our recovery strategy is based on recovering the business. When we do a risk assessment, there's a little bit more external facing where we're looking at threats and, exter- and things that could impact us from an external standpoint. Sometimes there can be a gap in between the two where an external risk or a threat could impact or change the way that we would be planning. For example, during the, um, during the pandemic, um, people obviously, we're, you know, we have their location, we have a building that we uh, all go to to work. Um, in, a, in an event of business continuity plan, we sometimes plan for losing a location. We didn't technically lose the location, but we had to repurpose and change the footprint because now all of a sudden we have to account for uh, separate, bigger separation and for social distancing. That means you can't house as many people in the same floor plan as you used to. A lot of people choose to not be vaccinated and may choose to be at home, especially initially in the pandemic where there was no vaccine available. With people working from home, that was in a number of uh, questions into preparedness. Did everyone have laptops? How do you procure laptops at the same time that every other company around you is also trying to procure laptops from the same vendors? We always made assumptions that we could always go to a retailer and procure laptops in the event of a disaster. What happens when everyone else is doing? We saw, you know, we saw major, major supply. And, and I think even as consumers, we all saw what happened when we were trying to get hold of like hand sanitizers and uh, hand sanitizer masks at the beginning of the pandemic, right? So now imagine that multiplying that by every company trying to get hold of laptops because maybe they have desktops in their desk. You bring the laptops home, now what happens? How do you get them configured? IT are now behind the curve trying to get those laptops set up and configured. People are accessing things remotely, but they may not necessarily be secure. What if they're using Wi-Fi without a password? Um, Setting up VPNs for everyone. So these were things that, you know, we've always made an assumption that certain key people, and when I say we, I mean as a culture, not necessarily in all companies, not, not, you know, one company. Um, there is a lot of companies that made assumptions that only key people would need laptops. Now, all of a sudden, everyone is working remotely. What happens when you have people who become sick um, and they may be a symptom of failure? They may have key knowledge that's very, very prerequisite. What happens when they have tasks that can only be done in the location, but it requires a special piece of equipment? And we saw many examples where, you know, we depend upon a particular vendor to supply with a particular item. Okay, if that vendor's not available, we have an alternate vendor. 
But in the case of the pandemic, one of the examples we saw was that the other vendor was experiencing the same supply chain issues that the first vendor was. Mm. Well, that, that was something I was going to uh, ask you about. Um, as I'm, you know, let's say me and my company, we're trying to get uh, extra laptops and everyone else is trying to get these extra laptops. But the company that sells those extra laptops is experiencing the exact same issues we need because they've sent, um, you know, their people home as well, and they need to work from home, so they're struggling to find laptops. So it, it just trickles everywhere. Correct, correct. It, it's it's a, it had a had a an impact that just continued to expand, and when we think about it, when we do when we put our plans together, we take a look at um, whether any particular piece of equipment that was very specialized, you know, it, you, you have organizations that may have a special printer that only, um, you know, if they're printing broadsheet, you know, architectural diagrams, or um, maybe it's a piece of equipment that's used in the pharmaceutical industry, you know, there's only one company that might make this one piece of equipment. Uh, what happens if they're unavailable to supply you? Uh, what happens if their materials are unavailable because they have a backup? Um, you know, that, that we saw a knock-on effect of a number of different things. And when we're doing contingency planning, we're doing risk. There were certain scenarios that we didn't, you know, and I say we in the collective sense that a lot of organizations didn't see coming and didn't plan for because it was a very, very extraordinary set of circumstances that we were all forced to deal with. I think for the longest time, um, when we thought of risk management or trying to assess risk, we're looking at a hurricane, an earthquake, a fire, a flood, the, uh, the the usual suspects, you know, for for decades, you know, always crop up. You know, how how vulnerable are you to an earthquake? Oh, not at all. I'm in the middle of Canadian Shield. Zero. Absolutely. Well, you know, I I live in uh, you know an hour west of Toronto. How susceptible are you to tsunamis? Oh, that's silly. Zero. However, what happened in Japan? So now no, that's a very good example. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, please, please. Um, uh, very good example. The starting to see is um, the term, and you may have heard this come up from time to time, is compound threats, um, where we're in a scenario where we're already dealing with a particular disaster. You know, our resources are being tied up working on, you know, being tied up working on a particular disaster, and then another disaster occurs. We saw Japan's a very good example where we had an earthquake occur, and now all of a sudden we're dealing with a nuclear fallout scenario. Um, and then if, even if you want to scale that back down, we're in pandemic mode uh, where people are working from home. Now all of a sudden we have to deal with cyber attacks and we have to deal with, um, as you said, hurricane or forest fire. We can't. We don't have the same resources, and people don't have the same access to the things that they used to because they're not actually in in the building. They're in. We're already using the emergency money or the emergency rainy day fund for various different things that are emergency related, but we didn't plan for an emergency on top of an emergency. Right. Well, let, let's stick with that for a moment because you, you gave us some examples, resources, location, staff, vendor applications, you know, the loss and those kind of risks. But you just talked about the compound threats. How do you go about identifying those? Do you say I've lost my staff? Um, and then try to figure out why you've lost your staff? Like, how do you go about identifying something like that? So there's, there's two different portions to that. Um, one of the things that, um, you know, we do, and one of the things that I recommend, um, 
that um, we, we learned from, from the uh, pandemic was to take a look at what would potentially be a long-term impact or long-term threat. So when you take a look at certain threats, um, you can divide up to, okay, now we know a pandemic can be a very, very long-term thing. A geopolitical situation could be a long-term thing. Um, but a tornado and fire typically, and we hope, would not be a long-term thing. There are circumstances where they be. Um, but the, for, for the most part, we want to take a look at what may be our long-term threats that could would require us to sustain that emergency scenario for an extended period of time. Now, let's combine that with potential short-term threats. What happens if we do have a fire during a pandemic? What happens if we have a, um, a cyber attack during a pandemic? You know, can we rewrite IT people to be able to um, make sure that they act on and do the things that they need to do to protect our infrastructure um, should that occur in a pandemic? Can they access the applications and software they need to? Are the tools at their disposal or are we going to have to tell somebody to get in the car and drive to the office so they can access things? Meanwhile, somebody's hacking into our systems. So there, there are a lot of various different things that we can do where we can combine that analysis to essentially we're, we're talking about scenarios but we're talking about combination scenarios you know we always use the expression murphy's law of what can go wrong will go wrong taking that and adopting that approach is not necessarily a bad thing because it, if you're pretty rigid and pretty strong to set up worst case scenario then you're probably going to be able to roll with a lot of various different things that could occur so who's actually identifying that then because your, your talk was about organizational risk. So obviously the risk management group is involved and we're talking about business continuity, how the industry needs to change. So how do you bring those together so that they're actually working to identify some of these um, compound, compound threats and different scenarios that are beyond the usual thinking? Excellent question. We typically find, and one of the things that you've probably seen yourself, is that in a lot of organizations, um, although most of those pieces with regard to continuity and disaster recovery, they all tend to occur and work together, um, both the solution and the incident that can cause it. Um, the work that gets done sometimes can be a little too siloed. So, for example, you know, your disaster recovery tends to be very IT-centric. Business continuity is one level of expertise and risk. Risk assessment tends to fall to either IA or a different group that may be more insurance oriented within an organization. Um, they tend to work within their, within their silo. And although sometimes there's a sharing of data, what we've seen is the Mormon programs and the, the, uh, the examples that tend to be the most successful are the ones who tend to have much, much better touch points at sharing that information. For example, um, when we do when, when we do a uh, business impact analysis, we're taking a look at um, what are our high impact processes. What what processes could have the highest impact if they failed? Well, when we take a look at a risk assessment, we're taking a look at what would be the high likelihood um, and what would be the high impact assets to be impacted. What would happen if we combine those two? It'd give us a lot of in more information because we'd be seeing okay, something may, in a risk assessment, may show up as a low likelihood, but in a BIA, it appears as such a high criticality, it's something we can't afford to ignore. 
And I think we've seen in the industry, the term black swan has come up and yeah. there's a couple of other new terms regarding that where there's an event that is so unlikely that we never really foresaw it, but it was catastrophic when it occurred. I think some of these catastrophic events were, we kind of knew about anyway. You know, I, I still remember the days and uh, nobody sent me emails about this because I don't want anyone taking this the wrong way, where before um, 9-11, people used to say, oh, what are we going to do if an airplane hits our building? And up to that day, people would say, that's never going to happen. That's not going to happen. Well, that event did happen and it changed the way we travel, the world changed as a result of it. So some of these things can uh, come true uh, and we have to look at it. Um, with organizational risk and, and the business continuity people, if they're doing two different things, looking at two different things, is it a mature program that brings those together? Who, who brings them together? You know, does business continuity look over the fence and say, hey, you risk guys, do you have anything um, that we need to know about? You know, how, how do you actually bring it together? Process-wise, what you said uh, to me makes complete sense, of course, you know, that they do need to work together. But how do you bring them together? Do you uh, present it as something different, like organizational risk and continuity or something? Uh, the, it's only because I've heard uh, quite a few stories of people having difficulty trying to break down these silos. It is it is a challenge, um, especially if and it, and it varies from industry to industry and how regulated it is. It also it can vary depending on how bad a disruption a company experiences. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know sometimes so, you know it, it, it takes a little bit of a knock for people to wake up and actually realize that they need to do something, especially at an executive level. Um, executive is important, but also being able to prove here we are, here's the numbers, look at this. There are so many things that we did that we could have done differently if we were a bit more collaborative in the way that we do it. Usually um, a steering committee um, should have a good level of representation, not just from a business continuity standpoint, but from a risk standpoint, a DR standpoint, um, so that they, uh, you know, you have, the, you have the scenario where each person is working a piece of the puzzle, but the puzzle comes together um, in a good steering committee where you can have a good overview. I mean, obviously that's that's idealized, but um, but there are there are ways you can still get the right type of buy-in, especially if you can do an exchange of um, of uh, an improvement uh, for each other. And here's a good example: um, I've actually seen an organization where the disaster recovery folks really didn't anything to business continuity program, and they were saying, "Okay, here's the list of applications, here's the recovery time objective, and." There you go. That's all you go. We're handling the rest. Yeah, leave us all. The business continuity folks, very clever coordinator in this particular case, was able to prove to them that some of the calculations and the things that they do on their end, they could send back to the IT team. And it would not only save them money because they were using some, some very active service to actually do that, but also they could provide them with data that made, made things better for them. So they had a better understanding of the order and the priority of recovery. So for example, we're doing a recovery based on, not just based on tier, but also based on just the location of things in the data center. Um, 
the business came back and said, well, wouldn't it be better if you put the uh, tier zeros a little bit close to each other so they can they can all be recovered better and and um, uh, and faster? So so you know there are certain circumstances, and I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing that story there, um, but uh, there are ways that you can actually combine um, data points where they can be mutually beneficial to each other. And let's say we have the steering committee, we have the points made about lessons learned. Um, we have it documented, this is what we've learned. What do we do with them next? Does somebody take charge of an action list? You know, uh, is it the steering committee who divvies it up? Because you mentioned yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, it could be the steering committee. I mean, ultimately, you still need one or two people to actually still lead the charge and run the program. And I, I think that sort of depends on depends on the, the personnel that you have. Um, you know, you may have somebody who has experience and is very, very driven um, within an organization that they would be perfect to lead the charge. They have a very good understanding of both what risk and business continuity do. Um, and then you turn it into not a project, but you turn it into a program. Um, because it's ongoing and you're going to be constantly adding to it and improving the process of what you do. Um, you know, and you, you can't, we always say within my organization, you can't boil the ocean. You know, you, yeah. you're going to want to focus on what your highest priority is now um, and what can you add on to then elevate that up to the next level with each iteration. Um, have it have a champion who, who can run with it and as they have executive buy-in is very, very key to that success. Well, I like the uh, the talk that you had there about the steering committee, because I, I worked at one place where I was kind of leading this the steering committee, and I was sitting in front of about 12 people. Every single one of them was either on the C-suite, because there were a couple of them, or with someone who reported to somebody else on the C-suite. And it was really interesting to find out their priorities and their viewpoints, because I turned around and I would talk to managers and team leads, et cetera, and find out that, wow, is there ever a disconnect between two guys? <laughs> you know, but it, it turned out I've really interesting. Times. Yeah, but it, it was a great way to lead things forward because they prioritized and you, I would barely get it out of my mouth and half of them would be, yeah, that's key. And the other half, eh, maybe let's just chat about it. And then everybody around the, the, the room would agree on the next course of action. Great document it let's take it back and get it done the steering committee with, with the support because a couple of them were on the c-suite with the support of the c-suite made a huge difference and you know when something even when incidents went wrong we would talk you know, did you uh, recall that incident that happened uh, two weeks ago you know um, we need to fix such and such because we've identified xyz and it would just start really the ball would start to roll and you'd really learn things. You know, there was a very, um, uh, the, there was uh, one of my mentors at one point uh, when Business Continuity once uh, um, made a comment about well, when it comes to testing, we're all keen to pass a test. Sometimes you learn more from a failed test than you do from a passed test. Um, and when sometimes, and one of the things that he did at one point in with a, with a client that he worked with was that there were some clear gaps 
that he could see in the scenario. Like, for example, he knew that, uh, and I'm going to throw this out there as an example, um, you know, he could see that the fire door, like a fire door was locked and um, at certain times of the day and the staff didn't have the right list to account for certain things. He deliberately set up a test and a scenario in this test that deliberately shone a light on that glaring failure. Mm-hmm. So when they the test and the C-suite and the steering said, well, what went wrong? Why did we fail the test? And then they could see immediately he got buy-in to fix the things that needed to be fixed. Because yeah. it's not until, as you said, it's, you know, you mentioned 9-11. I mean, even going back throughout history, I mean, look at the Titanic. It's not until, you know, in a terrible event like that happened, realize, okay, yeah, we, maybe we do need more lifeboats on on, but <laughs> on the big ship. So there's a lot that we can learn from a failure as well as learning from, from a success. Yeah, I, I've I've been part of tests that um, were deemed failures, but simply because the 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 working relationship between the technology team and the business team identified some things that nobody had thought of before, and the optics at higher levels thought that wasn't good because I think they felt well, we've done something wrong, so the test is a failure, and then that made them look as look like they were in a good position and our procedures are wrong. No, everything was right. We just, people started to work closer together and it opened up the communication channels and identified things nobody had thought of before. I thought it was one of the best tests we ever had. To, to That's fantastic. You know, unfortunately, yeah, and it, it's good because one of the things it does when you when you do get to that level of collaboration, it also has you have a better understanding and appreciation for what another group does, um, which puts you in a position that when you're when you're doing your planning and when you're building your scenarios, you have a better understanding of, well, they're not going to want that. They're going to want to be able to do this, this, and this instead of what I'm planning for. I mean, obviously, when you're building a plan, the person of that department is building the plan, but from a coordinator standpoint, you have a better understanding of the things that they're going to want to do and they're going to need uh, either from a resource standpoint or um, um, or from a, um, a communication standpoint. Right. And on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. Today, we are talking with Andy Witz on the topic of a rethink of organizational risk from lessons learned throughout 2020. And we'll be right back. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. 
Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's info at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Andy Witz on the topic of a rethink of organizational risk from lessons learned throughout 2020. Andy, lots of great information in our first segment there. Thank you very much. Let's talk about something that everyone sees and hears about in the headlines. Cyber. How did the pandemic impact cyber and cyber events? Oh, wow. It's, again, great question. Um, it, was a, it was a huge impact. Um, so let's talk about it from two sides. Um, from an external standpoint, um, there was a huge uptick in cyber attacks, uh, especially the phishing attempts. Um, I mean, if, if you take a look at some of the statistics, I mean, the, some of the numbers are more than double the number of attacks per week that recur into a lot of major organizations. Um, now, that, that's from an external standpoint, because, um, you know, if we refer to those opportunistic attacks, um, attempts with ransomware, um, you know, larger companies are getting to the point where, I mean, some organizations get to the point where they actually have departments and groups that are designed to deal cyber reasons, um, because it's actually sometimes easier to pay the ransom rather than hold out much as we you don't want to negotiate. Um, you can find yourself in a situation where they escalate the cost of the ransom um, and then you're still still in a bad situation and insurance won't cover it. Um, so it's, it's a pervasive, persistent problem. Um, now, from an internal perspective, now imagine we all have to now work from home and people are using their own laptops. Um, one of the things we saw during the pandemic is that um, there was an increased, you now I mentioned the increased efficient attempts. A lot of these were, a lot of phishing attempts were tied to codes. So people would receive emails looking like it was an update or a code dashboard or a pandemic information. It was very, very enticing and playing on people's fears for them to want to click on and find out more information. And phishing is one of the number one ways where, you know, um, a malicious type of hacker from outside of an organization can try to get access or into information. Um, within an organization. So taking that into account, what do you do about it? Um, you have staff who may be resorting to using a home computer. You don't know, you can't control that, um, at least initially, um, if, if you don't have a plan place, if they don't have laptops. You have IT scrambling to set up VPNs for their staff. You have you know, people trying to get laptops the moment's notice, and then we have the whole supply chain issue that we talked about in the previous segment. Um, and then how do you enforce security? How do you make sure that people's Wi-Fi is secure, that they're using the correct methods? Part of it is a training issue, and part of it is a procedure and being prepared. So the organizations that tend to, and I've, I've heard the words said many times over the past um, even I'd say probably 24 months of what saved us was, and the sentence usually starts with that and said, we had a number of laptops sitting uh, as just-in-time inventory, or we, my our CEO had insisted that everyone be prepared for verbalization. Um, a number of different solutions were presented um, where a lot of organizations due to the modern world, had already started to get themselves to the mindset of being virtualized. Um, that did save them, and that, that made 
made all the difference. Um, you also have the problem where had you also maintain a certain level of awareness, um, you know, certain organizations started deliberately sending out their own internal phish emails just to test their own employees to see who would fall for it and who my My last contract um, before the pandemic used to do that. They would send uh, their the internal staff thousands and thousands and thousands of people and would send a note. Our Outlook had a little button that you could just you know, report as phishing. And then you would get a message, you know, um, saying, congratulations, well done. You know, that was a, a test or whatever the case may be. And if you, by chance, <laughs> hit a link or did something you shouldn't have, you got a message, you know, basically saying, tisk tisk. And that's, you know, <laughs> might want to review our security policy again. <laughs> that's funny. Um, and it, and it, it's true. I mean, we had, um, and, you know, and the, you know, the, there's different issues that organizations can take with that. I mean, that, that's actually pretty funny. Um, but you, you can take it as a, you know, let's gather that data and find out how, how we need training or how we may need to review our, our training policies and awareness uh, with staff. You know, one of the other things, and this ties in with the, with the people being people aspect, uh, what happened? happens if you want to talk to somebody in HR or legal or a diverse different department and you're in a building? You may be somebody you know there, or you may go or walk into that department and talk to what you see. If you don't necessarily know the personnel, especially if it's a larger, larger organization, you don't necessarily know the names of the people there. A lot of organizations found that their org chart wasn't as easily accessible, nor was it easy to understand who worked for which department. So you have this lack of information where people are sitting in their, their office or their bedroom at home from home and they need to talk to somebody in a particular department. They have no idea who's there. Everyone has an email address that's generic to the company. Where do I find the org chart? Where do I find the procedure? How do I find the company directory? Um, it ends up becoming a lot harder to locate and know who to read out for different things when you're remote and if you don't have the information readily available. So some of the lessons learned there was, do we have the right information available? Is it accessible? Do people know where to get that information? So when we're talking about applying the whole risk assessment logic, we think of risks traditionally, we're looking at what's the risk of the hurricane or the human threats? What are the actuator? <clears throat> what are the natural threats? But there are some internal risks that we don't eye when, what are the gaps in our staff? You know, do people have passwords sitting on their post-it noted to their monitor? Do they know where they can get certain pieces of information? Do they have? Do we have a company directory that's accessible? Do we have an org chart that's accessible? Do people know where they can go to get certain pieces of information if they were remote? Those kind of pieces of information are very key to understanding how effective people will be if they are put in a remote situation. You, you mentioned a couple of interesting points. One, um, you talked about you know, lessons learned and updating our procedures and, and policies and things like that. I'm guessing that has to be an ongoing um, activity because the nefarious players out there, and in some instances, governments, are getting better at these phishing and ransomware and whatever cyber attacks. They're getting better at it. So we have to constantly revisit, right? 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's interesting, you mentioned, um, I'm glad you mentioned like government and everything. Um, but when we're taking a look at doing our risk, we also want to take a look at the actors that are, um, that are players in a particular scenario. So, for example, um, you know, if, if I'm, you know, a, a foreign government may be someone who is an actor that presents a very, very high, high capability threat to me uh, my organization but they may not necessarily do if, if i'm if i'm working in uh, an organization that has no bearing on anything they would want they have they have a low intent to actually try and do something to me so we want to identify not just what are we vulnerable for but we also want to identify who are we vulnerable from because or who would who are we vulnerable to uh, because that may that may determine the course of action and the things that we may want to do from a preventative standpoint and also from a recovery standpoint post event. Mm -hmm. the the other thing that uh, caught my attention too is not just the uh, updating of our policies and procedures and how they're getting more um, better let's say of fooling us because I wanted to point out that I, I like you, I was getting a whole pile of phishing emails, you know, hey, you know, I'm not even going to comment on just in case somebody is listening, but they they're the writing is getting better. They are now making things look like it's a real logo. You know, they it, it they're progressing to a point where it's getting easier and easier to think it's a legitimate email or request. Okay. You know, and, and you know, uh, one of the things that's, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 I was actually telling you to go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> thank you. Um, no, you're absolutely right. And the quality, um, and I hate to use that word because that makes it a good thing, the quality of uh, phishing attempts has been increasing. And, you know, they, they've gotten, gotten to the point where they do look very, very professional. Um, Understanding and enforcing policies uh, on a regular basis is very, very important. Saying, you know, reinforcing, saying no one, and we know this, we hear this time with, with banks, we'll say no one from our organization will ever ask you for your PIN number or ask you for your account number over the phone. Um, and there are ways that you can, you know, you can protect yourself, even if you can't identify if something is a phishing email, then don't respond to it, but then follow up with a fresh email that you have created to that person saying, hey, did this come from you? Is this something? And I've seen it from time to time where I've, I've had um, an email come through and I've actually checked with marketing and say, come from you guys or this is this something external? And there are times I said, oh, that's us. And there are times that they've actually said to me, uh, no, go ahead and delete that or report it as phishing. So, so it's about communication. And like with most things, um, whether it's um, collaboration between departments, as we talked about in the previous segment, um, or, or within organizations themselves, communicating with your staff is so key. Um, we're sort of starting to bridge into the human capital piece as well. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you next. <laughs> oh, great. Awesome. Thank you. Um, what's interesting is that as, as a lot of organizations saw, um, you know, people are people. Um, how do you keep morale up of, uh, of staff who are remote and feeling disconnected? They are not engaged. Um, an interesting 
you know, interesting contradiction is that um, a lot of organizations saw productivity go up because people are not commuting, they're working during the time they would be commuting, and also they're actually working later and sometimes actually long on weekends and doing things because they want to get things finished, uh, which is interesting because I think there was an, a, a, traditionally a perception that if you work from home, you are kind of not really paying attention and you're half, half, half working compared to the reality where productivity actually went up in a lot of their different areas. I don't know if I can speak for every single vertical in every industry and every company there, but um, feedback I've had from a number of clients and a number of organizations have said that the productivity went up. Um, but then let, let's talk about the human nature and the aspect of that. Um, people are feeling remote. They, uh, they, they're seeing information come through. They're more susceptible to click on emails um, that may have their interest. Um, how do you also not only ensure that they're doing their job and they're logging in and they're doing what they need to do, how do you ensure their well-being and their uh, mental health throughout a, a pandemic? How do you ensure that they have access to the information that they need? Some you, you have different types of personalities. You have people who are askers who they don't know, they'll email everyone asking what they need. And you have others who just shut down do anything and then just say, well, I can't do anything until I know what I need to know. Um, so over-communicating is necess not necessarily a bad thing when it comes to dealing with the capital side of things. Well, what about things like um, uh, burnout? Because you mentioned, you know, the, the point of people are working more. You know, it, it's kind of blown that original thought that if you're at home, you're watching TV and not doing anything, you're not really engaged. Now there's burnout and yet people are still not feeling engaged. So how, how do we go about maybe trying to deal with that? You know, with all, like you said, all the information overload, sometimes that's affecting people in a different way. Yeah, no, that's a very, very good point. So there's, again, there's a few different aspects to that. There's the, there's the burnout factor of maintaining morale for staff. Um, how do you, I mean, different companies did, okay, we're going to do a, um, the most common one was the, the Zoom happy hour, um, that, um, that, uh, all the, you know, the web meeting happy hour everyone did. Um, there's, there's also, um, some companies that I heard, they sort of not necessarily enforced, but they encouraged that people take a mental health day. Um, people weren't taking vacations because they can't travel anywhere. So you've got an accumulation of time off saying to people, okay, um, you know, we're going to rotate through different teams that you're all going to get a couple of days off. Um, in some companies said, you know, they're encouraging and re really requiring you to take a day or two off because we recognize that you guys are working hard. Um, it actually did wonders for, for appreciation and appreciation um, with, with the organization. Some organizations sent out gift cards to their staff Say okay, we recognise that you're dealing with a lot at home. Here's a gift card for, um, you know, for for groceries or for in, Instacart or whatever um, that you're you're going to do. Um, so th there's a lot of various different things that we saw happen where, um, you know, people were you people use an opportunity to sort of proactively make their style better or feel uh, feel more um, more supported. Now the other side to that is. It really, really shines a light if you've got single points of failure. 
So if you have a particular person, every organization has that one person who has been there since since the beginning of the company, knows where all the bodies are buried and knows how to do everything and everything. Exactly. They're wonderful people to have, but they're always pretty much overworked and they have a lot on their plate. What happens if that person becomes sick? What happens if that person burns out? Um, making sure proactively that you cross train is a very, very key piece to success. Um, we've seen it many, many times where there's that tendency of, well, we don't have time to cross train that person or for that person to cross train because they're busy doing like with most things, it's a bit of a time and money investment to cross-train, bring people in and do that. But once you've done that, then it sort of fixes the problem more with a lot more longevity than, than just trying to off or give them a day off here and there. Plus, should anything happen to them and should they fall sick, and obviously we want to make sure everyone's fine and everyone's okay. But at the same time, we also have to prepare for the worst scenario. Um, you're actually sharing that information. So not only somebody can alleviate their burden, but also you're increasing the viability of companies uh, able to sustain themselves throughout a disaster. Quick question. As you were talking, I couldn't help but think of uh, the four-day work week, which I think is being floated around in one of the Scandinavian countries. Mm -hmm. I just wondered if you could take, you know, 30 seconds or a minute. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm not going to hold you to it. And, you know, um, Andy's boss, you know, he, he's, it's just his own personal thought. He's not telling you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to go down to a five day a week. <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, in, in, in all honesty, it's one of those things that sounds like a good idea, and, I've, and I'm going to tweak that a little bit. I don't know if it's viable because sometimes we have, um, we have, you may have clients that may be only available on that day. Um, in a very highly competitive market, um, it's very, very difficult to cut down your service ability or service availability or your service levels and still remain competitive with us on more service levels than you are. Um, that's a tough thing to do. I think what tends to work better is to, and we, you know, I've seen this both internally as well as with other companies, then discuss, well, what if we were to find ways to cut down on the amount of internal meetings we have or make the meetings more efficient and more effective then mm -hmm. by doing so, we get more accomplished, use up your time for individual contributor work rather than, um, you know, I've, I've seen so many people say I'm in meeting, 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 not one after the other, and they can't get anything done. Therefore, they leave their work to the evening or the weekend, and that's where the burnout occurs. Um, being able to make sure that we look after people and say, okay, well, you know, how do we, how do we make sure that the meetings are effective and productive, but then you still get time back to actually get the work done you need to do? Well, believe it or not, we only have three minutes left, but there's one question I still wanted to ask you. Um, so um, I guess you'll have to talk fast, I guess. <laughs> How do we um, combine the different disciplines, risk, business continuity, et cetera? Any suggestions? Yeah, absolutely. So okay, what I do is, is apply the concept of the risk analysis two components that wouldn't normally be part of a risk analysis. So you've components from a business, con when you're building your business continuity plan, you're looking at a loss of staff, loss of location, loss of um, application or vendor. 
take risk mindset, apply that to maybe staff and say, okay, well, what happens if, do we have any single points of failure? What happens if we, this person, particular person was a week or maybe two weeks, three weeks? Um, when you take that approach and you can take that with each piece, like for example, with location, what if the location is unavailable? Now, what if the location is available for three months? Uh, what if we have to change the footprint of the location? On those questions that rather than just, is it likely and is there an impact, put in a little bit more color to it, helps identify a lot more of the gaps to say, okay, hang on, we've found a gap here. We need to plan for this because we have a single point of failure or we don't have enough. If this happens, don't have enough staff. We don't have enough laptops on hand. We have a gap in our cyber policy. We don't have enough information online. All of those things that we want to apply, take the business continuity segments that we would typically see as a recovery strategy and apply a risk mindset to it. Great. Well, on that note, we've come to the end of our show. Um, oh, by the way, I did get an email five years ago. I thought it was spam. It turned out to be a legitimate email, and it had to do with actually putting this Preparing for the Unexpected show together with Voice America. I thought it was spam. <laughs> I had to look it up to find out it was real. <laughs> Aren't you glad you clicked on it in this case? <laughs> I'm glad I did my follow-up. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Andy. I really appreciate your expertise and time. Um, and I'm sure you've got better weather uh, where you are down in Arizona than we do up here in Canada at the moment. It's really cold where I am. So, <laughs> so thank Not you very problem. much. And really for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, my, my uh, pleasure. And uh, I'm glad you shared uh, your thoughts and uh, time with us. So thank you once again. And to everybody listening and watching, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.